Over the past few months, I've heard and used the term stuck at home a lot to describe the social isolation measures brought on in response to COVID-19. It can come across as a complaint, but being stuck at home is also an inherently privileged position, at least for those of us whose homes are safe and comfortable. To be sure, many of us do feel stuck at times as we face the challenges, both big and small, of trying to do work, stay healthy, and live life from home. As a university professor teaching classes and as a parent of two small children, for me, many of these challenges involved learning to navigate the complex world of online education. While I'm very grateful that so many schools have managed to pivot to remote delivery during the pandemic, I'm also very aware of the profound inequities and other problems involved in our sudden shift to virtual learning. This includes the enduring digital divide, which in Canada and elsewhere has never been more prominent than it is right now. From vast disparities in terms of students' access to computers and devices, to the lack of broadband internet service in many rural and remote parts of the country, including Indigenous communities, the rise of technologically mediated learning has been problematic to say the least. Just as being stuck at home is far from a universal experience, the virtual classroom embedded in digital technologies and infrastructures is riddled with contradiction and variation, opportunities and barriers. Notably, this is something that people living in refugee camps have been confronting for years. Educational technologies are seen by many as providing a set of incredibly promising tools for children and young people living in refugee camps to access quality education, which is really important. As of last year, 2019, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees reported that there are now 26 million refugees worldwide. Around half of them are children and teens under the age of 18. Only a small percentage of refugees are resettled every year, and most people living in refugee camps are there for years. For child refugees, this can mean their entire childhood. Dr. Nagin Daya, Assistant Professor in the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information and Technology at the University of Toronto, has been conducting research on the topic of refugee education and technology since 2011. Much of this work is done in partnership with two co-investigators, Dr. Sarah Dryden-Peterson of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Dr. Olivier Arvisset of the Université de Québec à Montréal. Together, they have collaborated on participatory research and fieldwork, much of it focused on the Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps in Kenya. About 350,000 live in the camp near the Somali border. The Kenyan government opened the Dab camp designed for 90,000 refugees in 1991 as a temporary solution to the civil war in Somalia. Dr. Daya was recently awarded a Kanat New Researcher Award to return to Kakuma and extend their fieldwork to the Zaleka refugee camp in Malawi. Their research explores how refugee communities adopt different and at times unanticipated technologies for educational pursuits. It has been published in several top-tier journals, including in an award-winning article that appeared in a 2017 issue of the American Educational Research Journal. This work is providing unique insight into the technological realities of everyday life in a refugee camp 
with the potential to transform pedagogical approaches to this critically underserved population. It also aims to expand our current definitions of what constitutes as an educational technology, something that many of us will need to consider and address more deeply in the months and years to come. I'm Sarah Grimes, Director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Nagin Daya, the team's expert on digital media production and learning among non-dominant communities. It seems to me that within popular discussions of refugees, the primary focus is usually on what happens next, after that period of their lives has ended, after they've been released or resettled. Among other things, your research sheds light on the fact that in order to have job opportunities or a chance to pursue higher education later, we need to address the massive inequities that young people in refugee camps face now, specifically when it comes to access to education and technologies. Can you describe what youth education looks like in a refugee camp? I think that one of biggest problems in refugee camps can be summarized in terms of instability and that there are instabilities that come through in different domains. So, of course, people living in a refugee camp have faced uh, conflict and um, often violence and political upheaval, and so they are dealing personally and psychosocially with their own um, you know, well-being and mental health and the well-being and health of their families. There are generally low resources in different refugee camp contexts, uh, including a lack of access to, you know, basic schooling materials, but certainly to technology and new technology. Where new technologies exist, um, there can sometimes be a lack of training or a lack of uh, digital or technological literacy, as well as um, a lack of uh, good and thoughtful um, ways of integrating uh, these technologies into local cultural contexts. And part of that is related to um, the ways in which the teachers who are there are already so overworked and working to deal with the basic needs of their students. Um, and adding on this uh, technological piece can uh, sometimes be more than what is manageable in, in that setting. There are instabilities in relation to culture and gender and the ways in which the dynamics and expectations around gender um, align uh, for girls in schools, uh, from their local communities and the pressures that they have uh, to provide and support their families at home and from the international community where we're also wanting to see, of course, more gender equity. Um, so there are really a, a, a range of different kinds of instability that make it very difficult to access and achieve that quality education um, so that people are ready to uh, move on with their lives uh, if they have an opportunity to leave the camps. And of course, the, the, the bigger issue is that the average duration of uh, stay in a refugee camp once you have entered one is around 17 years. So people are not actually moving through camp contexts very quickly. What impact does this have on the everyday experiences and aspirations for the future 
among refugee youth. In the research that I've done predominantly to date in Kenya, um, many of the young people have strong aspirations for uh, contributing back to their communities locally within the camps that they live in and improving their lives and the livelihoods um, in, uh, in their homes and in their local communities within the camps. Um, and many are also aspiring to the future where they will return to uh, either their homelands or where they will be able to resettle uh, somewhere else more permanently and continue with their lives. So despite the long durations of stay, there there is hope and hopefulness for moving on to, um, you know, bigger and better things, if you will. And the young people that are engaged in education and that are seeking uh, better education, quality education, and eventually post-secondary and higher education opportunities in refugee camps are really seeing the ways that they can contribute to the world globally and, and locally. And that is uh, something that uh, is a motivator to continue working through education systems and to engage in uh, you know, different types of teaching and learning uh, that, that might help them achieve those goals. So in your work, you use an ecological systems model. And here I'll steal a quote from your 2017 article in American Educational Research Journal as, quote, a framework for understanding social capital and the ways it may travel to and from refugee camps, end quote. What sort of technological ecosystems have you identified in your research? What we've seen is a lot of different kinds of technology being used. So mobile phones uh, predominantly are in use. There have been various efforts at various times to build computer labs. There have been internet cafes. There's uh, a lot of e-commerce that is happening. So using mobile phones for mobile money transfer and to um, you know, run businesses, right? Local uh, businesses. And you also hear about uh, other kinds of technological infrastructure that is being built. So uh, in the context of the Syrian refugee crisis, there have been, you know, uh, eye tracking devices, right? Retinal eye scanners for um, uh, identifying, uh, identification purposes, right, of people in the Zatari refugee camps as, as an example. So I think the landscape can be quite large. Um, in the context of education and in my research, we've really identified that while there have been various initiatives and different kinds of, um, you know, cloud services and different uh, types of tools that companies have brought in to try to solve particular problems in refugee camp settings, um, really the mobile phone has been one of the, the, the game-changing kind of tools. So the tools that were already in the hands of community members for other reasons that were cheap and accessible, relatively cheap and relatively accessible in these environments, um, were sort of taken up in ways that could also be used to enhance their social and academic supports. That's so interesting and such a contrast to some of those computer lab type initiatives you've mentioned. Can you say a little bit more about how mobile phones are used as educational support technologies? We have really been investigating the ways in which SMS messaging, so text messaging on a phone and group chats over WhatsApp are being used to support um, 
young people who are pursuing higher education. So the first study that uh, Sarah Dryden-Peterson and I conducted looked at how um, young people were using SMS and social networks, including Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp Messenger, to identify opportunities to go to university. So they were actually in that study, in that study we were finding that these um, support networks that were both social and academic in nature were happening through existing networks of um, other refugee community members who were already enrolled in university, who had maybe left the camps and were living uh, somewhere where they were attending university, and they were able to basically coach and inform and support people in the camps as to how they could also follow those pathways. In the subsequent study, um, we worked with uh, Olivier Arvise and Daisy Duhabi, and we focused on uh, WhatsApp Messenger and group chats in particular. And that study ended up being oriented around uh, teachers who were in training. And that is still sort of uh, following the trajectory of, of young people, because often what happens in the Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps is that a young person will graduate from high school, and then they will be the most qualified person to teach in that high school. So often what we have are extremely bright, hardworking individuals who don't have any formal training in curriculum and pedagogy to teach high school. And so some of the post-secondary and higher education uh, opportunities that are available in the camps are focused on this sort of capacity building, right? Where if we can provide some formal training for teachers, uh, this will of course improve the quality of schooling for a larger number of people. Amazing. You don't usually think of WhatsApp as a platform for teacher training, so expansion of that technology. What are some of the other unanticipated uses you've uncovered in your research? The use of WhatsApp group chat in particular, um, both across teachers, but also teachers with parents and other community members, was uh, really in high use and really valuable for problem solving a situation with uh, a young person who was, for example, not attending school. So someone who maybe uh, was not showing up and they wanted to figure out, well, what happened to this person and how do we deal with this problem? A lot of these issues were gender related, so perhaps a young girl was being kept home from school because the family needed her to help take care of younger siblings or to help with the cooking and the cleaning and the domestic chores. And so um, the teachers would sort of navigate a balance of, well, do we penalize the student? How do we talk to the parents? How do we balance the needs of the home with the desire to have the student complete school? And because the teachers themselves were sometimes in uh, different locations within the camps that were not necessarily easy um, to convene in person, they would do a lot of this uh, communication over uh, WhatsApp chat groups. And in other cases, there were teachers who were getting uh, male community members, parents, uh, fathers and brothers who had some authority over the girls in their homes to uh, participate in a, a male outreach program that was also building towards gender equity. And they would use also uh, WhatsApp group chats to basically initiate some of the conversations around uh, the importance of girls going to school. So there would be sort of, you know, knocking on doors and talking to people 
asking people to come and meet for an in-person workshop, but in between sort of the knocking on doors and the meeting for a workshop, um, there were examples of teachers and community sort of educators and community outreach um, workers sort of using group chats to prime the conversation. So initiating uh, little chat groups to talk about the issues so that when all of these people came together in a room, they were already a little bit further along. They had been sort of scaffolded towards that conversation and towards thinking differently about the importance of, of gender equity. And so in these ways, the sort of technological ecosystem is both very uh, refined in relation to the communities and how they're being used, in this case on mobile phones and WhatsApp as one example, um, and very large in scope in terms of the network and the distribution and availability of, of phones and, and chat uh, applications for people to be able to participate. So you mentioned gender inequity as a key factor impacting young refugees' access to education technology. Can you speak a little more about that? There are definitely uh, some sort of blanket divisions around gender. So in the refugee camps, we know that girls, by the time you get to high school, for example, are uh, really deeply underrepresented. So where in primary, the numbers might be a little bit more equitable, a little bit more equal. Um, in high school, they really plummet, and you have very low representation of, of girls in high school in, in this region. Um, and while many people, uh, girls included, all have access to technology, um, in my studies to date, it has been shown that women have far less time to engage in a sort of multiplicity of functions using their technology and using their devices. So whereas men interviewed in one study, for example, described that, you know, they would be Googling things and they would read the news and, you know, they would communicate with friends and they would try to prepare their courses if they were teachers and do all of these things sort of uh, over their mobile phones at various times of the day. Um, the women mostly identify that they didn't really have that time, you know, that they were, you know, waking up in the morning and they were cooking and they were cleaning and then they were going to school either to study or to teach and then they were coming home to make lunch and, you know, they just didn't have the leisure time. And for those women, their social networks on their phones were quite critical and uh, really important opportunities to get information about how to sort of navigate the pathways that they wanted to follow uh, to improve their livelihoods and pursue higher education. What roles do you think young people themselves might play or maybe are already playing in addressing some of these disparities and barriers to access? Yeah, that question uh, sort of brings me uh, back to a sort of North American context and to actually think a little bit also about refugees and resettlement. Um, a study that I conducted last year based in Seattle, Washington, involved uh, uh, an inquiry into uh, techno women, technology, and education in resettlement. And one of the things that we identified there that I think has proven very relevant at, at this time with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is that young people are often the mediators of information. So as the state uh, or 
ruling authorities. So in a refugee context, that might be the, the UNHCR or the humanitarian aid organizations who are working with the government to create a, a, a plan uh, for the health and safety protocols of that particular region. Um, this information is you know, often disseminated uh, through young people. And this is true for a lot of immigrant families, for refugees, for people who have different levels of, of uh, you know, who are multilingual and who might be living in a country where their first language is not the primary language of use, right? So I think that there are many contexts where young people are the ones who are, you know, learning the language that is the government and schooling language of the place that they are living when their parents might not necessarily know that language as well. Well, and that's a really big factor, I think, in the transference of really critical information. Um, and then, and then, relatedly, that they are the young people are also the ones who maybe have that, uh, you know, interest or access or um, sort of aptitude in using these new and digital technologies, where a lot of that information is being spread. And in the in the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, it, it has become very clear how essential that is. And in the study that I conducted with my collaborators at the University of Washington in Seattle, it was very clear that for women, um, you know, learning how to use a mobile phone and having autonomy over digital technologies and knowing how to navigate the uh, websites of the schools where their kids were going and the information that was actually going through these um, these systems that the schools were using um, was really important to their ability to participate in the world and also uh, the world that they were living in and also critical to, to being able to uh, stay connected to their children's lives and at the same time that the children were often the ones mediating that information. Um, so I think it, it is ever more clear how important it is that uh, you know, young that, that we really understand how technology is being distributed and who is using it. Um, I think in a in a kind of counter example, I conducted a, a study uh, last year in a juvenile rehabilitation center, also in Washington State, uh, also with collaborators from the University of Washington Information School and with the public library system in Washington State, uh, in a a tech-heavy region. And for those in particular who were inside the juvenile rehabilitation system for a long time, um, the access to technology was very poor. So they were getting like hand-me-down systems from their local school district. The teachers were similarly not very well trained on how to use those. Um, you know, they didn't have phones, they weren't allowed to use internet, so they would really not be getting um, they, they would be sort of the other side of this conversation where in, in that instance of confinement, um, these young people were actually being really left out and left behind of this uh, critical moment in technology and, uh, and, its, and its necessity in keeping us really well informed about what is happening in the world around us. Um, and to my knowledge, that, that has not changed over the course of the pandemic. So you mentioned the pandemic, and I did want to talk about that. COVID-19 has been a huge, challenging, life-altering event that for many of us has been made a lot easier by access to digital technology and high-speed internet. 
But what has the global pandemic meant for those living in refugee camps, where access to technology, education, and resources more generally was already insufficient and inconsistent? Um, the short answer, which is a little bit terrifying, is that I have no idea because there's been very, very little communication. Um, and that is something that, again, is related to the dynamics and the positioning of me as a researcher. So there are certainly people who are working, um, you know, closely with the individuals, with the administrators, with the governments who are all involved with these locations to ensure that, um, you know, people are taken care of uh, in the best ways that they can. Um, but in the context of wanting to have community voices uh, speaking about their own experiences, uh, this is something that in the context of the pandemic and the lockdown and the shifting priorities and the lack of direct access to people because of lesser availability of technology has created a real barrier to our ability to uh, to communicate, to listen, and to potentially, uh, you know, share and collaborate on ways of uh, having those stories and experiences heard directly from the people who are in those locations. Um, and I think technology and a lack of technology, whether that is by regulation or because of um, just the, the limitations of, you know, well, if, if people aren't going to school, if teachers aren't getting paid, if you can't top up your cell phone, you know, then you can't use your data to even make that phone call or use your WhatsApp to communicate with the people that you normally communicate with. And so, you know, you're framing around the privileges that some of us have had. The, the opposite end of that is the absence of all of the things, right? And, and a, lack of, a lack of visibility into um, the, the lived experiences of people who are hit hardest, I think, by the economic and the health factors of COVID-19. You were recently awarded a new researcher grant to support one of your current projects called Portraits of Education Change, which includes a return to the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya and new fieldwork in the Zaleka refugee camp in Malawi. How has that project been impacted by COVID-19? I think as we've heard often in, you know, the news headlines, it is the most the already marginalized communities, the already disenfranchised and, uh, you know, under-resourced communities that are hit the hardest by uh, this kind of a crisis. And there has been a real halt in uh, sort of moving sort of the research program forward. I don't necessarily, uh, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. So I think that it is important that people's immediate needs are prioritized and that the research partnerships and collaborations are pursued and implemented in a way that is respectful of the community's needs. So for the type of work that I do, while it's 
important in a long trajectory of understanding how to build out programs and support education. Um, putting a pause on some of this uh, at a time when people have more urgent needs related to health and safety um, is not a problem. And I think we wait until the communities are ready to resume their own engagement with these research practices in a way that is safe so that we can collaboratively uh, figure out how to, how to move forward. A big thanks to Professor Daya for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about the Portraits of Education Change project, the publications mentioned here today, as well as information on where to send any questions or comments you might have. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, with lots of support from the KMDI. Audio mix, music, and sound design by Turner Wigginton. Theme song by Tycoon Park. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. And thank you for listening.